you have your Bibles, will you please turn to Jude and the 24th verse. <clears throat> what I thought would be about a three-week walk through Jude has become almost two months, plus or minus a couple of weeks of guest preachers, I guess, but certainly much more here than meets the eye, and I, I hope that you've at least captured that much this morning because we have finished quite a, a, a complex and really just dense with truth. We're going to read the letter before we begin. So I'm going to begin in verse 1, but we're going to be spending our time in verses 24 and 25, what's called, at least in, in my uh, Bible, the little subtitles, the doxology, might be in yours. I think it's pretty easy to see that that's what it is. So let's read this morning Jude, beginning in verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, a mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way 
and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Do others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that You will bless the preaching of Your Word. Help me to be clear. Help me to be to well communicate what is, is in these verses for us to hear. We do not need to hear from a man, but we need to hear from God. We need to eat from the food that is spiritual and nourishing for our souls. So please feed us this morning from your word by the Spirit. We, through Jesus we pray. Amen. Jude has ended his letter here with a doxology rather than a benediction. If you're familiar with some of the New Testament letters, then you may remember some of the ways that they end particularly with Paul, the benediction, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All of these are benedictions. And there's a difference between a doxology and a benediction. A benediction, which is how many of the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, New Testament letters end, is a blessing from God to the people. So it's this direction. It's a downward direction from God to you. That's why at the end of our service, we finish with a benediction. It is not my blessing to you. It is not my prayer for you. It is me reciting the words of God's blessing to God's people. From God to you, grace and peace to you. But that's not how Jude ends his letter. Jude ends his letter with a doxology. A doxology is the reverse order of a benediction. It is not God blessing us. It is people giving glory to God. It's going that way. That's why the doxology song that we sing is praise God from whom all blessings flow. Uh, this, uh, this verse, uh, these verses that we have here, maybe, definitely my favorite, but maybe the most beautiful of the doxologies in all of Scripture. And this is how Jude has chosen to end his letter. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why has Jude done something different than what may normally be. He begins his letter uh, the normal way, sender, recipient, greeting. 
But he doesn't end his letter in the same way as usual. Why did Jude choose to end it this way? Is this just a literary choice that he has made? Is this just Jude has decided to uh, put that tag on there so when you hear that, you know, oh, we're at the end. How is, this, how, how is his intention here? To understand that, I think that would be helpful for us to imagine that we are one of Jude's churches. Imagine that we are living in this day in which Jude is writing. We, our beloved friend Jude, has written this letter to us and we have just read it straight from him and heard these words from Jude to us. Imagine all of the things that has been gone, that has been discussed in this letter, namely the need to contend for the faith and the dangerous teachers that are existing. Imagine hearing that and realizing that I'm talking about people that are sitting in the pew next to you, or in front of you, or behind you, across the aisle. Who are these people and what are they, why are they here? What makes them so dangerous? Judas explained some of that. How many of them are there? Is it just one? Is there a bunch? Seems to be talking like they're teachers, so which ones are the ones I'm supposed to be listening to? Who are the ones that are okay? Judas finished his letter, most recent verses that we looked at last Sunday, with several instructions on how to respond to these false teachers. And the main one that he gave was to keep yourselves in the love of God. And imagine you sat there and, and heard about all the dangerous things happening within your church and then being told, keep yourselves in the love of God. And you, ask your, and you tell yourself, I want to keep myself in the love of God. But you know, quite honestly, I don't know if I'm going to do that as good as I should. Enough to protect myself from these people. What if I fall away like these people fall away? What if I don't build myself up enough in my most holy faith? Or what if my church fails to build me up in the way that I need to be built up? What if I'm tricked? What if I've already been tricked by these false teachers? And what if we get them all, but not all, or get some, but not all of them? What if I'm already contaminated by these garments that are stained by the flesh? What if when I'm trying to show mercy, to all these different types of people. They get to me instead. This, I believe, is why Jude ends his letter the way he does. He's not just signing off. He's not just giving a few closing thoughts, but rather finishing his response to how we should respond to the false teachers. One of the commentaries that I read this week that helped me began the section with these words. It is a dangerous thing to live for Christ in an atmosphere of false teaching and seductive morals. It is a hazardous thing to try to rescue men for the gospel out of such an environment. If you get too near the fire, it will burn you. If you get too near the garment stained by the flesh, it will defile you. So then he asked the question, is withdrawal the answer? Is that what we're supposed to do? Just back away because we don't... I would rather risk losing you than being contaminated myself. And so, for my sake, I'm just not going to get involved. Jude 
wants to leave his readers with this final encouragement. Really, what we have here are two more responses to the, to the false teachers. And it's all under one big final encouragement, and that is this, that God is at work in you. Of all the things you need to know, you need to know that God is at work in you. So don't focus on what you can or cannot do. Remember what God does on your behalf. Instead of worrying about what might happen to you, consider, as we finish the letter, what is happening to you by God. This will give us comfort and encouragement and even boldness to do the things that we are taught to do in this letter. And so Jude finishes a letter about contending for the faith by fixing his reader's view on God. Such an appropriate song that was played for the offertory. I don't know if you read the words or not, but all about seeing. What am I seeing? Where, 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 are, my, where are my eyes fixed on? Jude says your eyes need to be fixed on God. And he ends the same way that he began. with a view towards the work that God does for us, not the work that we do for Him. So as I said, he reminds his readers of two final ways that we should respond to these false teachers, namely with trust and with praise. And we'll get into those in just a moment. If you're following the outline, there are some words that are left open and they are not the words that you may think. So don't jump ahead of me, please. Previously, he told us to beware of these false teachers. Don't be surprised that they're there. Don't be frustrated that they're there. Know that they're there. Beware of them and be aware of their presence. Secondly, he told us to be focused, focused on the right things, focused on the truth, focused on Jesus and His return, His mercy, and focused on one another as we build one another up in our most holy faith. Thirdly, he said that we are to be merciful. We are to show mercy to each other, to those who are doubting, to those who are uh, in danger of the fire, and probably even the false teachers themselves, though it is mixed with fear and hatred. Final, two final things. So first of all, God, uh, Jude says, let's focus on what God does. And he begins by saying, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but it has at least helped me this week to think about it. You've ever been at a place where someone gives a toast? You know, they raise their glass and they clink it, or maybe they clink it and then raise their glass, and they give a toast to a person, and they say, you know, to Jim, or to Sam, or, or whatever, you know, or to the, the happy couple, and and you're, you're, you're giving them some honor in that. It's almost what it seems like what Jude is doing here, but on a much, much higher level. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. First of all, Jude wants us to notice what God does, particularly to him who is working. To him who is working. He says in verse 24, now to him, and then from that point on to the end of the verse, he is describing him. He's not going to finish his thought until he gets to the end of verse 25. So we actually have two, two hymns. 
to him in verse 24 and to the only God in verse 25. Same, same him, same person, but it's a description of what God is doing and then we'll see in a, in a minute a description of what God deserves. So now to him, and, and it describes him. How does, notice how he describes this God. First of all, this is the God who is able to keep you, or for our notes' sake, to prevent you, or to preserve you. You can use a P word if you'd like there. He says he is able to keep you from stumbling, or keep you from falling. Some important words that we want to make sure we understand there. This is a different time. Uh, this is a, another time we see the word keep, but it's got actually a different meaning. And the, the word keep is used several times in this letter, specifically at the very beginning, verse number one. We just saw it a minute ago in, in uh, verse 21 keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, that word is also translated and used uh, throughout the letter as well. Uh, we won't look at all of those, but the context is still pretty much the same. God is keeping you or protecting you. He is preserving you. He is preventing you from stumbling. What does it mean to stumble? Jude uses several words that are the only time they're used in the, in the, in the whole Bible in the New Testament. And this word stumbling is actually the same. It's, it's the only time this word is being used. But its, its root is used in several other places. We talked about this a little bit Wednesday night, those of you who are here for a little bit of a preview. We got into this a little bit. To, to, uh, to the stumble has a variety of meanings, and it ranges from something as, sim- uh, as, as simple as tripping and falling to e- utter and eternal destruction, the word that can mean quite a bit there. And so we have to do a little bit of homework to figure out which one, what, what does Jude mean by this? James 3.2 talks about stumbling in the same word, and he says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. In this context, I think it's, it's more talking about he's sinning. You know, if I stumble, I, I say the wrong things. I insult you or offend you in some way. On the other side, the other extreme of it, it can mean utter and, and, and disaster and, and utter ruin. 2 Peter 1.10, which is almost like Jude's cousin uh, as far as the letters go. They're very, very uh, parallel to one another. 2 Peter 1.10, it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And there I think it has more along the lines of apostasy, falling away. And so this is something that we need to kind of uh, consider for a moment. And I'll present some some, some thoughts for you to think and then really leave that on, on, on you to decide how you think it's supposed to end up. God is able to prevent His people from stumbling. This is what's known as in a systematic type of a, of a world, the preservation of the saints. This is a truth that is taught throughout the New Testament, throughout the Scriptures, that when you become a child of God, you are a child of God. That is never going to change. You don't have to worry about if you're going to lose your salvation. You don't worry and wonder if God is still going to keep His promise, because usually because we've done some kind of sin in the meantime. Your security is wrapped up in the fact that God is keeping you. It is not in the fact that you did something. 
Way too many people have a security and a hope in their salvation because they say, I prayed the prayer. I did the thing. I got baptized. I joined the church. I said the things I was supposed to say. I did the things I was supposed to do. God, this is why I know I'm going to heaven. And that is contrary to what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach us that if you are going to be safe in Christ, it is because God is keeping you safe in Christ. And that's from verse 1 all the way down to the end. And this is one of the great truths that Jude wants to make sure his people understand. If you are in Christ, you're safe. It's good. It's a good thing. And it's not some, some, some shaky foundation of your own accomplishments or your own feelings. It is on the sure and steady anchor of Christ alone. So does Jude mean he's able to keep me from sin? You have to think about what, what that word means in, in context of what Jude has been saying. Jude has been saying that there are uh, a lot of teachers among you who would lead you astray. They would lead you into eternal destruction. He's also said in earlier verses that you need to contend for the faith. And the faith we talked about is the, the body of truth that was once delivered for all to the saints. It is, it is not a thing that changes. It is a body of truth. This is the truth about Jesus. And this is the hope of our salvation. This is the hope uh, that we have in Christ. But Jude has also just recently, in the verse before it, said that you need to show mercy to people. And at the same time, you show mercy you show fear mixed with hatred for the sin-stained garment. Hatred for the, 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 the effects of sin. Mercy towards the person, the sinner himself. So which one is Jude saying? Is Jude saying that God keeps us from sinning? Most of the times that we see this word in the New Testament, it means to sin. It's only used about four or five times. And almost every time, I think three or, three or four of the times, it, it's, it's talking about sinning. And this recent mention of being afraid could imply that the people were afraid that they would sin. And so Jude wanted to comfort them and say that, uh, that they, are, that they are, you know, have to worry about that if you risk showing mercy to people. But on the other hand, Jude could be saying that he will keep us from apostatizing, from truly falling away from the faith, much like these people who seem to start out good. They seem to be going down the right path. They said all the right things. Even maybe they thought they, were, they weren't deceiving people intentionally. They truly thought they were in the faith. They thought they were right. But they fell away. And boy, how far they fell away. Boy, how far they got off track. And maybe Jude is, is, is implying here uh, that he is going to keep you from this eternal ruin. God will not let you apostatize. God will not let you deny the faith. Verse 1 implies kind of that. that he says you're kept for Jesus Christ or by Jesus Christ there. So in my, in my most diplomatic answer, I believe it means both. We talked about it Wednesday night. We had uh, fist fights and everything trying to, trying to sort it out. And uh, so I just decided it means both. Now, that's not because I'm afraid to, to pick one answer, but I honestly, the more I look at this, I think it goes both ways. Because we are dead to sin, when we are in Christ, we are dead to sin. And that means that it no longer has a hold of us. We are no longer under the power of sin, which means if you're a Christian, you don't have to sin. Every time you sin, 
You chose to. You didn't have to. Because we are called and beloved and kept by God, verse number one, you are safe from apostasy as well. Because God will not lose one of His sheep. Now, it doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again. You're going to. You've lived the Christian life at any length of time, you know you have. And that's because there is a war going on inside of each one of us between the flesh and the spirit. And the, they, they cannot exist together. And the flesh was fine and happy to be all by himself in you, ruling. But when Christ came in and began to clean house, the Holy Spirit now dwells in each one of us and makes no, makes no room for the flesh. They cannot cohabitate, and the one is going to be kicked out. And it is not, well, which one you feed the most. It is which one is stronger, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. He is going to sanctify each and every one of his children. So I think it's both. It means that we do not have an excuse to not show mercy simply because we fear we might stumble. Whether or not you're afraid you're going to sin with them or completely fall away, you don't have an excuse to not get involved, to not get in there and show mercy because He is able to keep you from stumbling. Secondly, not only is He able to keep you or preserve you, He is able to prepare you. Or another word, present you. I'm using the word prepare for a specific reason here. Now notice in these two, things, these two thoughts here, we have a negative thought and we have a positive thought. We have the negative thought of He's going to keep you from falling. We have the positive thought He is preparing you. This is the sanctifying work of God. How will He present us or uh, prepare us? He says in two ways. First of all, without fault or blameless. Listen to what Ephesians 5.27 says. This is that passage of Scripture where it talks about husbands loving your wives as Christ loves the church. But in that, and Paul is not talking primarily about marriage. He's talking about Christ's love for the church. And he, decide, he says there in verse 27 that it is Christ's intention to present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul says it again in 1 Thessalonians that it is God's intention to establish our hearts blameless in holiness. So not only is God able to keep you from falling, He is able to prepare you for what He says here, His glorious presence. To stand before Him one day. To be in the very presence of God. And without this work of God done in us, we cannot stand before Him. To be able to stand on the last day is a sign of accomplishment. Because not everybody is going to stand on the last day. But those who have been worked on and through by Christ, by the Spirit, will stand before Him blameless and notice with great joy. And we don't have time to go into this even further. But think about those, that moment, those, that eternity when we stand before our Maker, and not just our Creator, but our Father, our Savior, who loved us and gave Himself for us. 
great joy, knowing what he has done on our behalf. Jude reminds all of the readers and us today that God is doing work on our behalf. He is preserving and preparing us to stand one day in his glorious presence. Remember, all of that was just descriptive of Jude trying to get down to his thought. This is the God who works. And because this is the God who works, this is the God we praise. So secondly, and I'm going, I won't take as much time on this, what God deserves. What God deserves. To Him who is worthy. So first, to Him who works. Secondly, to Him who is worthy. He says there, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Because of all the work that God is doing, God gets all the glory. God gets all the praise. He alone gets the glory, the majesty, the dominion, the authority. And notice, he says some key words here that we put them all together when we get some very great truths. First of all, to the only God. So there's only one God. And Jude has not even really brought that up, but he does emphasize that at the end. To the only God. There is one. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jesus. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus, our Lord. It's an emphasis here on the Trinity. How there can only be one God, and yet we worship the God through the Son, Jesus Christ. And even in the work of God, we see the Holy Spirit involved. All the glory, all the majesty, all the honor, the authority, the the power, the blessing is given to God through Jesus the Son. That's why we make such a big deal about Jesus in church. And in all of our lives, because that is how we bring glory to God, through Him. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said, and no one glorifies the Father but through Him. What does He deserve? Four things, and I'll just give them to you and let you dwell on them, and I want to make a brief application to it. First of all, He says these these four things be glory, that is honor, renown, prestige, recognition. Secondly, majesty. That's importance, greatness, pre, preeminence. Thirdly, it is dominion. Dominion and authority kind of mean, they go together quite a bit, but dominion is, talks about his power and his might, his sovereignty. Fourthly is the, is the authority. That's probably the easiest one, but that's his right to rule. So to God be honor, importance, sovereign power, and the right to rule, the control over, the command. These things to God. And notice, he puts a time reference to it. Before all time, now, and forever. Before time began, and in the present, and on into eternity. Now this is not a prayer wish. This is not saying, may God be glorified. Because it doesn't make sense for him to say, may God be glorified in the past. Been done. He could say, may God be glorified now and on. But he says, to, God, to Him be glory, honor, for all, for, uh, before all time. So this is not a prayer wish, but a declaration of something that is true. He says, this is true. To Him belongs glory. To Him belongs authority and dominion and majesty. And then, 
he declares it and adds his amen. That's his stamp. It's a Hebrew word. If you realize you know Hebrew, if you know amen, it's, it's Hebrew, amen. And, and, and it's been brought into and we use it. It's not an English word. And it means let it be. So be it. Here, I'm with you. That's why sometimes in a, in, a, in a service you might hear someone say amen in the preaching because they're saying, I'm with us, so be it. That's right. Or we finish the prayer. We say all these things. We say, amen, so be it. Jude finishes his letter by describing the greatness of the glory of God and says, I approve. I, I'm with you. I'm right down, right down the line with it. He saved us. He keeps us. He prepares us to stand before Him blameless without thought. Amen. I want to read something to you. I, 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 this just beautifully describes in a way that I couldn't, so I, I just need to read it. It's a little lengthy uh, description here. But think about what, what uh, this uh, it's Christopher Green who wrote this. He's talking about this, this last little bit, God our Savior. And he says, the word Savior is such a small word and has been so abused and trivialized in much Christian thinking and praise. But when the mighty day of God comes, more terrible than we can imagine, when we see for the first time who it is we rebel against, how perfect His standards are, how ghastly our sin is, how seriously He meant all the Old Testament warnings of judgment on the grumbling Israelites, the mutinous angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, then we shall see with fear and wonder what a mighty work the cross of Christ was and is and shall be forever. The fact that God Himself has acted on our behalf to rescue us from a judgment which we so thoroughly deserve means that the heavens will echo forever with our shout of praise. As we think about what God has done and who God is, it should well up within us never-ending praise. So very, very shortly, what do we do with this? Is this just flowery language to God, or is there something there? There's something here. First of all, we must rest in Him who works. Trust in the One who works on your behalf. Never lose sight of the fact that redemption is God's work from start to finish. Rest in that. Trust in that. You don't have to perform to earn God's favor. Secondly, Praise the one who works on your behalf. That's what verse 25 is all about. Praise the one who works on your behalf. To him be glory. To him be majesty. To him be dominion and, and authority. Now, forever, and, and, and ever. Amen. While we wait for the mercy, we rest in the finished work and we praise his holy name. And finally, and maybe this is the hardest one, live the amen. To say amen, to say yes, I believe that, is easy. It's harder to live it that way Monday through Saturday. How does this play out in real life? Just a couple of thoughts to, 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 to finish with. Just to ask you a couple of questions to consider. Does your life reflect Christ, uh, reflect rest in Christ? Or does it more, look more like fear of the unknown? Or does it look more like pride in your own accomplishments? Whose glory do you work for at your job? Do you want your boss to look good? Is that your ultimate goal? Or is it to make God glorified? Do you want to look good? Whose honor are you looking for at home? As a parent, 
How do, we, how do we parent our children so that we can receive glory for being great parents and recognized? Or is it for the honor of Christ? Who is the all-important one in your life? Who matters the most? According to your words and your actions and your choices, who matters most? Who is in control of everything and every part of your life? With our lips, we might say, well, God is. But does our life reflect that truth? Do I live and behave as if God truly is in control? Or do I live as if this world is out of control and what are we going to do? Or do I live as if I'm in control? Who has the right to rule? Who determines the choices that you will make? Does the word of God dictate how you will live? Or do you do that? Or do the fads of this world, the trends, dictate? Do you respond to life's circumstances, at home, at work, as though God is sovereign in his plan? God is at work in all things and in every area of your life. Do you model joyful submission to God's sovereign ways to your family, moms and dads, or to your co-workers, to our community? How does our church model to the community that God is all-important, sovereign, and in control, that to Him belongs the glory? and the majesty, power, and the dominion. Jude recognized here a very real and present danger within the church. Not just the one church, but all the churches in this area. That there were false teachers and dangerous, damnable doctrines being taught, leading people astray. He does not want us to end thinking about them. He wants us to end thinking about God. God who called us and loved us, keeps us as his own, who preserves us, and prevents us from stumbling, who prepares us to make us stand before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To this God, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you truly are worthy of all of these things. It is our shame and embarrassment that we cannot comprehend and, and uh, really grasp how worthy you are. You have graciously opened our minds and our understanding, even as much as humans can be see that you are worthy. We see it in our lives, in the ways that you've done things for us. Lord, help us to see in what you've done through us and in us that you are worthy of praise. And then from there, to see how you are worthy because of just who you are. Maybe because of what you've done in other people's lives or what you have spared us from or spared others from or, or in all of the things that your word teaches us. May we have our eyes fixed firmly on you and boldly and confidently 
obey your word and reach out in mercy to those who need it, to love those whom you love, and even be merciful to those who will never come to you. Father, we need your help for this. There are some this morning that just need that reassurance from you that they are kept by you because their life this week says otherwise. Their heart condemns them. Lord, you are greater than our hearts. There are some this morning that are not truly yours and they are rightfully convicted because they have trusted in their own accomplishments, they've trusted in their own works and their own actions and try to build a foundation of man's works in order to reach heaven, to reach you, and they are right to be afraid because it is a faulty foundation. Lord, you are a sure and steady anchor, a foundation. You do not make the way for us. You, you are the way. You bring us to you. Lord, you are Glorious for so many reasons, and it is our, our hope that we might have our eyes open to see how great and how awesome you are, and then to worship you fresh each time. Thank you for this opportunity to have worship together, feast on the word, to be reminded of you, your doings, and of your ways. Bless your people as we go from here, as we go back into the community, into our workplace, into our homes, wherever we may be. Help us live the amen. Live an affirmation of, the, of, of these truths that we've seen this morning. For your glory. Through Jesus we give these things. Amen.